welcome back to the Econ For You podcast series. I'm your host, Sanjana, and the aim of my podcast is to interview professionals of different industries in order to find out how we can develop our economy for the better. Be sure to follow at EFY Podcasts on both Instagram and Twitter for future updates. In today's episode, I am delighted to introduce Professor Paul Freiters from the London School of Economics, where he teaches the master's course in wellbeing and public policy. He currently advises the UK government on how to implement wellbeing policies at a national level and regional level, so hopefully our discussion will unravel this further. So, Professor Freitas, I was just wondering if you could briefly introduce yourself and what your work and research is based around. Uh, Okay, Uh, hello to all listeners and viewers, whoever they may be around the world. I'm Professor Paul Freitas. Uh, educated in the Netherlands, and I've spent about 15 years in Australia and now back in Europe in London the last four years or so. I've worked on a variety of issues sort of to do with social economic mysteries, uh, the development of countries. I've worked a lot on China and India, uh, on corruption matters. But uh, the thing that uh, I have done most, particularly in the last few years, is work on happiness and well-being. Uh, and so what I've done in London is try to help the civil service and the government, uh, but also academia, in terms of developing tools, methods, and insights uh, in order to make all of us a little bit happier, if possible. Um, and one research is that by, first of all, looking at a lot of data, who's happy, who's not happy, uh, look at data whereby things change, so who's become happier due to what kind of policy changes, and also thinking more widely about, well, what is the nature of humanity, how do they interact, how can we intervene in that, in a way that improves matters. that's roughly what I've been doing. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting to hear. So, focusing on the well-being um, aspect, do you think it's possible to over-measure or under-measure well-being? Because people's lives are constantly changing and um, the measurement of well-being is subjective to change over time. So, how can well-being be measured to take into account this volatility? Um, I think that one should see those matters... In the, in the way of decision support systems. And so the fact that well-being is changing because lives is changing is a reason to measure it. It's not a reason to stay away from it at all. Okay. Um, it, what, what one is after is a measure of uh, how people are, are sort of feel they're doing in their lives as a whole at any moment in time, how that is changing, uh, with a view to figuring out, well, how can we increase this? How can we sort of, you know, have less of the events and policies which make people miserable and have more of the events that make them live longer, productive, happier lives. Um, and so the, the question is less whether well-being is changing, the more whether uh, it, it, we are really picking up what people find important if they reflect on that. Uh, and in that sense, yes, we've, we've sort of found quite a while ago uh, quite a few measures which seem to do a reasonable job of people's long-run plans in lives, people's long-run ambitions, sense of self, what they find important. And so the main way in which we now measure well-being, not just in the UK, but throughout the world, is to ask people how satisfied with their lives they are. Um, And there's a lot of information in that. It's a very simple question. You just ask people, on a whole, how are you going in life? And a zero would be totally unsatisfied, a ten would be completely satisfied. Um, And it's surprisingly informative as to how people think they're going, and it also picks up a large element of their physical and mental health. Uh, their life's ambitions, how things are going in a social sense, their status. Um, and we now have something like 200,000 studies in the literature on, on what moves this thing up and down. 
And so we, we've really started to get a reasonable idea as to how to ensure reasonably high levels of well-being and what not to do. Okay. And then, of course, it becomes a matter of trying to convince the rest of the world that, that indeed, this is not a bad way to go, to sort of base a lot of policy more on the analysis of that kind of question. Yeah. So I understand that the newer metric that um, we're using is called the well-be. Um, could, you, could you elaborate on what this measures exactly? And um, I think you've covered what it measures, but how is this data actually calculated? Um, so the, the, there are two things to say, right? A, a well-be is one unit of this life satisfaction question for one person for one year. So there's, this, there's a notion in there of sort of a, um, a distance that there is between how a person's life is going and what, a, what as it were, a perfect life would look like for them. And one basically tries to minimize that distance, and so on. One sort of has a, a notion of of how large that distance is, uh, and that is what the well-being picks up. So one unit of well-being is one unit closer to the maximum that you can have as an individual. And then the government, in principle, wants to have as, as high a stream of well-beings for the whole population that it is in its care uh, from now to you know uh, the sort of the very distant future the future that is still part of the population, if you like. Um, now, if you're then thinking of how does a government maximize this, what, what it effectively does is that it, it sort of has to make decisions. And in decisions, it's got to decide how to do things, or how to really organize things, what to regulate, what not, and also what to fund and what not. And in those decisions on what to do and what to fund, one then bases oneself on well, how likely is it that this this makes a stream of well-beings of the population go up or down, and how strong is the evidence for it, and how much does it cost, and what are we foregoing? So one then lines up the things which are the best bang for the buck when it comes to budgets. When it comes to regulation, you want to do things that in greater likelihood than not improve the stream of well-beings, uh, and one doesn't regulate, what well, reduces the stream of well So you, you, sort of, you, you become slowly more rational throughout the system, sort of the idea. And, and also, this kind of information, this kind of judgment, doesn't just have to happen at a single central place. You know, we're not talking about the supercomputer which understands the whole world. It becomes a tool, right? Sort of the, it's natural that London is more oriented towards the well-being of Londoners, and that the north of England is more oriented towards the well-being of the north of England. Yeah. Um, but also that in, in various realms, you know, a hospital is more worried about the well-being of its patients. The police force is more worried about the well-being of the community it serves, and a prison is more oriented around the well-being of sort of you know, the, the prisoners on a longer run sense, but of course with an eye on the community, and that these people are going to go back, and hence uh, you, you want them to uh, to be productive parts of society, and, and hence also have a, a well-being increase. So it basically becomes a tool, right? It becomes a tool for decision-making throughout the system. Okay, yeah. So with this tool, um, you mentioned in your talk a few days ago that, as a basic rule of thumb, um, an additional 10,000 in GDP, PPP, starting from 1,000 per person, buys an additional 10 years of life. So I was wondering if, would you say that a 10,000 reduction in GDP, PPP, would cost each person 10 years of their life? Does it work the other way around? Um, well, if you start from, of course... Uh, the UK, which has something like 30 to 40,000 GDP uh, PPP in terms of pounds, then of course that 10,000 is not the same as going from 1,000 to 11,000. Going from 1,000 to 11,000 is, of course, starting from a very poor base. 
Yeah. Uh, and hence we are talking about, let's say, India in 1980 versus India maybe now, right? Mm. Uh, and it has gone through maybe 10 to 15 years of the increase in life expectancy. If we are to envisage India going back to 1,000 uh, PPP, mm. then we are envisaging a return of extreme poverty, the, the total destruction of nearly all of its sort of health facilities for the large part of the population, a huge increase hence in child mortality, uh, the return of many diseases, which have which have sort of been suppressed to a large degree, and then death, one would expect. Uh, sort of, you know, the loss of 10 years of, of life in terms of life expectancy. Uh, one wouldn't expect the same loss of life in life expectancy for the UK with the same drop in income because it just has a high level. But yes, you, you do, in a long-run sense, think that it's sort of symmetrical. But of course, it's a very difficult situation to envisage that we sort of go back to you know, extreme poverty of what is already a distant past. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So moving on to the COVID crisis... There are several trade-offs which can be explored, um, so things like the cost of social isolation, cost of unemployment. Um, which would you say has had the largest reduction in well-bees? And do you have any like specific trade-off numbers on this? Yes. Um, so we know that at the individual level, unemployment is terrible, and that, of course, this means lost production for the country, lost tax receipts. Uh, and that, that is where the, the loss in government revenue is, uh, is, is having a large effect uh, because governments, and particularly welfare states, are actually pretty good at well-being levels. So we know that that is a strong effect. And, and as a rule of thumb, an individual who's unemployed for a year uh, costs about 0.7 well-being, basically meaning that their life satisfaction is 0.7 lower. Um, and that is a large effect. But we know that... Uh, just locking people down and putting them in social isolation, effectively making them lonely. And mm. these social distance rules, the lockdown rules, that already is now likely to cost them maybe 0.5 in life satisfaction on a yearly basis. Um, and that is just a huge effect in itself. Because, of course, despite the fact that this is a, a, a tremendous economic oppression that is coming, the vast majority of the country is not going to be unemployed. Uh, unemployment might... 10% higher than it was, but that's 10% of the whole labor force, which is the population, and, and, uh, and furthermore, uh, lots of people can be expected to find a job again. But of course, locking down the country and, and enforcing social isolation basically means you do this to nearly the whole population, but you lose an enormous amount of well-being. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, that, as it were, certainly from a short-run point of view, the biggest thing is the social isolation of lockdown. That just creates an enormous amount of unhappiness, uh, which is totally avoidable by just not doing that. Um, but, of course, if you totally devastate the economy and sort of go back to a much more primitive society, well, that, that will, in the long run, also cost you more. So it, it depends a little bit on how much you wreck your economy along that, and that sort of the effects will remain. Okay, so with the current lockdown, would you say that there have been more costs to well-being or more benefits? And what could have been an, oh, a better alternative to...? Yes. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that the costs of locking down the population away the potential and the prophesized benefits of lockdowns. So mm -hmm. there, there has been a massive well-being loss in the UK uh, in, in order to avoid a threat of a much lesser magnitude, basically. So it's not been worth the risk. Uh, 
And let's hope we don't repeat the mistake in the future. There have been many countries in Europe which have now realized that they've done far more damage than that the threat ever was of COVID. Uh, and they said they're not going to do it again. So Macron and France said we're not going to do this again. We realize this is too detrimental to our economy and social life. Um, Iran uh, said we're not going to do this because it's And Also, if you look at the map of Africa, lots of countries try social lockdowns and, and distancing and, and sort of mimicking Europe. Uh, but they quickly let go of it after they saw the devastation and that caused and are not keen to restart it again. So it has sort of been the, the luxury answer of rich countries and they've done tremendous damage to themselves without, without much benefit, actually. There's, there's no clear relationship between you know, who's done more draconian actions and whether they down the line get more or less COVID deaths at all. So it's, it's been a, a straight shooting one's own foot. Yes, it seems like the lockdown measures have been more fear for the government than actually them because they have access to all the information surely about how a lockdown would impact the economy so it seems to be more um the fear of deaths that rush them into that um i was also interested how you mentioned how ivf treatments were impacted by um lockdown could you elaborate on that for our listeners yes so i mean the the west as a whole is something like what's the number again Something like 200,000 IVF babies are born every year in the West, maybe half a million in the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, and what has happened, and this is particularly true in the UK, which has a lot of IVF treatments, uh, something like 2,000 babies are born every, every month, normally speaking, due to IVF treatments. Uh, they were all stopped at the start of these lockdowns, at the start of uh, the social distancing rules. And they were, they, they were just they were mandated to stop. We're not going to do this anymore. Um, there was also fear, so when they were allowed to restart again, you know, lots of the clinics and lots of the patients of course, were, were too afraid to go for those treatments again. And, and that, of course, just directly means those babies won't be born. Right? We will see that sort of dramatic drop in maybe, what, five months' time from now of, of the treatments that were hemstown four months ago. And also the reality of IVF treatments is that it takes a while for them to start up again because you, you sort of got to... Uh, reap the eggs amongst the women, and you've got to plant things in to the womb. Um, and that just takes preparation. You know, it takes hormone treatments, and you can't just immediately start up again. So there's sort of a, a lead-up cost. So uh, there's, as it were, a couple of months of lost babies already, even if you sort of d decide to, uh, to to restart very quickly. Um, and what is also the case is that there's very likely not to be much of a catch-up. It's not that those women and men will get a chance later on, uh, because many of them are very close to infertility, that's why they're in IVF treatments, but also it's close to capacity anyway, so they were sort of oversubscribed, and hence if, if those who were previously just on the books are still helped, that means someone else will not be helped. Uh, and so we are really talking about a large stream of babies, from like 2,000 per month of lockdown, whose lives are now prevented, and these are babies you know, who would have been part of sort of very supportive families would have lived 80 years uh, and that's uh, a tremendous loss of course in terms of well-being for the country as a whole yeah and these things should just be part of the national debate but they're not the national debate is, is overwhelmingly focused on as it were very small groups of victims which are of course tragic as well but one has to look at all the other victims that are that are being caused by our, our actions yeah and like National policy seems to be putting a lot more prominence on GDP, like monetary value of things. So 
because I understand you advise the UK government on policy decisions. I was just wondering, um, could you tell us a bit more of any specific policy changes that you have suggested that have taken into account well-being and maybe have been more successful than they would have been? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the well-being movement, I would say, in the UK in the last 10 years, because that is sort of, you know, what really has a policy effect. It's not really true that this comes because of one or two individuals who advocate or be part of a wave. Uh, so the well-being movement, I think, has, has had tremendous impact in the UK in the last 10 years. I think a lot of the increases in mental health services have sort of been part of the success, if you like, of the well-being movement. There's the increased access to psychiatric therapies, which is over a million people which sort of got enacted 10 years ago. There's also been the rise of all the mindfulness uh, training, which has been taken over by the top of the civil service and most uh, top universities now have this as a standard package for their students. Um, it's being taken over in schools, this sort of healthy minds curriculum in, uh, in London. Um, I think also the, the, this whole take up of positive psychology and uh, resilience type measures is, is part of the well-being movement. There's also been tremendous successes inside companies. So um, well-being is now part of the employee-employer contracts, if you like. Or many, many, uh, particularly large and wealthy companies have now have professional well-being consultancies telling them uh, how to improve their workplaces to make them more sociable, to have less conflicts, to increase job satisfaction, which also in turn is, is worth a lot of money because then people are more productive, they're less likely to quit, less likely to have fights on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and that is partly about mental health. It's also about partly about treating staff uh, as if they are humans. Of having a livable workplace, uh, it's it's not just reducing bullying. It's it's also having uh, regular social contacts with people, having a form of selflessness in the workplace, um, having more of sort of regular social interactions, uh, recognised as something that's okay to have, and, and having a sort of more caring uh, environment. Yes, but but also one whereby things are more clearer, uh, and whereby the goal of the organisation is recognised to be something worthwhile. Um, and that has come in a big way as well in the last 10 years. You know, this, this, this corporate angle, as it were, businesses have really found out that well-being is worth the investment for. You know, the market has now spoken. Okay. So those are some of the successes. Okay, that's great to hear, yeah. I think that brings me to or the end of my questions. Um, it's really great to see like all the work you've been putting in to get... Um, I've seen a lot of your talks and other stuff, so it's good to see that... Um, Social well-being is not being dismissed as it was in the past in firms, policy making and stuff like that. So um, good luck for your research and um, thank you again. Thank you very much for this opportunity to sort of tell your audience about well-being more. And best of luck to Joanna. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our guest speaker today. Be sure to follow the Instagram at EFY Podcast. And I hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion.